You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. Um, We are looking at the Gospel of Mark, obviously, and uh, you might notice we are starting at the end of the Gospel. So um, we looked at the uh, story of the resurrection in our first week, and you might rightly ask yourself, why are we going backwards? Uh, And uh, the answer is because I think if Christopher Nolan made a film of the life of Jesus, it would have gone backwards. Uh, I I think a great director who is trying to create a film of the life of Jesus um, might think about starting at the end and moving towards the beginning, um, partly because that way you see where everything's going as you're reading it. Uh, I also sometimes like to read Psalms backwards so that you kind of see things afresh. Or take a famous example of any story in the Bible. If you read it backwards, sometimes you see things new uh, that you wouldn't have seen before. For instance, in this passage, what Susie just read is just filled with all this senseless brutality that if you didn't know the ending um, would seem completely meaningless, like meaningless, random, accidental suffering. But when you know the end and when you know that Christ is going to rise from the grave and when you know that he is going to be vindicated as the son of God, then it changes the way you read all of that, all of that abuse. Um, So I want to look at the verbal abuse and I am going to focus on the verbal abuse because That is what is most prominent in this passage. But I want to look at the way that that abuse, which again seems just kind of like, why is this happening? You know, just piled on and on. And it seems like these are the type of things that you would watch happening to someone and say, uh, there's no way there could be a God to let all that, all that he's already down. They're just kicking him when he's down over and over and over again. You're just like, there's no way that a good God will let that happen, especially not to someone he loves. And yet there he is just pounded by these people over and over again. I want to look at that and just the general phenomena of verbal abuse because it's real, it's deeply painful. And then I want to look at the way that he redeems that, that in the end he is vindicated, that all these things that he will say about him are not true, that in fact what is true about him is that he is called the son of God by a Roman centurion. And it kind of undoes and uh, redeems the abuse. So those two things. Um, Now usually... When you hear about the resurrection and the crucifixion, the concentration is on the physical, uh, on the physical body, the physical body that is, uh, you know, tortured and then raised. But in Mark, the crucifixion itself is only given really three words. They crucified him. That's all it says in verse 25. Um, All the gospel writers are extremely understated about the physical violence. They do not want you as a reader to be thinking too much about the physical violence. 
So it's the opposite of a horror movie or a Stephen King novel. I'm reading one right now, so I know that, where there's a lot of concentration on the physical violence. And if you've seen The Passion by Mel Gibson, that film, there is way too much concentration on the physical. That's not what it's about. It just says they crucified him, verse 25. That's all it says. On the other hand, look at the verbal violence. So you have the guards. And these are coming from people of all different strata in society, all these different types of people. You have Jewish people, you have Roman people, you have guards. They're gambling for his clothes right in front of him. Talk about mockery. They've stripped him of his clothes, they're on the ground, and these guards, as he's dying, are gambling for his clothes. If you've seen the the Christmas Carol, you know there's a scene where they're gambling for Scrooge's clothes as after he's dead, and they're and he's like, he's like, I want to see some response to my death. And the, and the, the angel shows him, um, the ghost of Christmas future shows him these people gambling for his clothes. It's a, it's a form of mockery. And then you've got the guards uh, and, and Pilate, verse 26. Uh, Pilate is lampooning his kingship by putting this thing over his head that says this was the king of the Jews. Because he had claimed to be the king of the Jews. And now Pilate's like, yeah, right, this guy's the king of the Jews. He's being crucified, right? So he's, he's making fun of him. So you have the soldiers, you have Pilate. Verse 29, just this random passerby, or more than one passerby. And it says they're wagging their heads. And that's not a word that you see used very much anymore. You know, someone wagging their heads like a dog's tail. I don't know exactly what that conveys or what another translation would be. But it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a form of derision uh, of the person being contemptible. They're wagging their heads as they pass by. These are just random people. They don't even know him. And they're just mocking him. Then you have the chief priests and the scribes who, growing up, he would have looked up to, verse 31. And they actually say something to him. They say, uh, he saved others. Now he should save himself. He saved others. He can't save himself. They're mocking him. They're making fun of the powers that he claimed to have. Then you even have the two people on either side of him who are being crucified. They're criminals. They're, they're thieves. Uh, they've probably, um, this is probably some, something like armed robbery. I mean, they're being crucified. They didn't just steal a small thing. Uh, these are hardened criminals. And even they get in on the action. They feel like they have the need to also... Uh, revile him, which is to, to just uh, to spit at him and to laugh at him, even as they're dying. And then finally, in verse 36, this random sponge carrier comes out. I don't know who this is. Uh, very menial job, and he wants to get in on the action. So he's like, wait, I know. Let's see if Elijah comes and brings him down. Just to rub salt in the wounds. So here's Jesus. He's hanging there. He's helpless. He's beaten. He's bleeding. He can't do anything to defend himself. He can barely breathe. And six different groups of people feel the need to just punch him when he's down, verbally. And I don't know if you've noticed this about the Gospels, but why is it that there's so much attention to the verbal and so little attention to the physical? And a friend of mine who I was talking about this passage with this week, he's a counselor, so he's done a lot of counseling of people, and... um, He told me that if given the choice between being verbally and physically abused, the people that he sees who are in terrible marriages, they always say they would take the physical. That they would rather have that happen 
than actually being screamed at uh, regularly or derided um, in some way or mocked or scorned or laughed at. And they say, partly it's because with the physical, you see the bruises. You can tell it's real. People can say, oh yeah, you've been, your, your husband or your wife is horrible. Look what they're doing to you. Whereas with a verbal, you look completely normal. You could be anybody. And you're just being constantly undermined and losing all this confidence. And you might think, I'm the crazy one. You know, I'm the one who's messed up. I might have even brought this on myself. And my friends, like, sometimes they come in and they think they deserve that. And so the Bible is acknowledging here what it acknowledges throughout, which is that um, one of the deepest pains of being a human being is to have this kind of thing happen to you. Um, the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you know, from 1 to 150, it's amazing how often it's verbal, how often the psalmist is devastated by the words that people are saying to him or her. Um, this this is so significant, a fact, that in Psalm 22, uh, it is predicted what happens in this passage, which, first of all, is, is kind of mind-boggling. How could a psalm predict, you know, hundreds of years earlier, what happened to this man on a cross? I mean, how do you predict that? How could that possibly be? But sure enough, in Psalm 22:7, 7, uh, it says, and this is spoken by a righteous sufferer. The Psalm 22 is about a, a a man who is the embodiment of righteous suffering. And this person in Psalm 22, 7, and you can look this up, uh, he says, everyone who sees me mocks me, and they sneer at me, and they shake their heads, they wag their heads at me. So the psalmist is writing about the mind of Christ hundreds of years later, um, and he is foreseeing what is happening to Christ on the cross. It's that important. It's that important that God would want it to be inspired hundreds of years earlier. And then in Psalm 22, 8, it's got the actual words they say there. It says in Psalm 22, 8, they say to me, let the Lord rescue him since the Lord delights in him so much. Let the Lord rescue him since, since the Lord loves him so much. And you feel the, the pain there of, of being treated like you're a naive fool for believing. You're a naive fool for saying that God loves you. Haven't you ever felt that before, that... Because you say that God loves you or you trust God or that you're praying that someone makes fun of you and they mock your faith. You know, when you really love God, as the psalmist did, as Jesus did, when you really love him and you express that, you are opening yourself to pain because that is vulnerable and you become a huge target to a coworker or a spouse or a child or a parent or a cousin or a sibling. It doesn't have to be your faith, of course. It could be your height. It could be your weight, it could be your accent, the way you speak, it could be your mouth. Sometimes I still cover my mouth because I don't even know what happened. I don't know where that happened, but something happened where I sometimes feel embarrassed about that. And it does not have to be spoken words. In fact, it's often not spoken words. It, it could certainly be a text or regular texts, or it could be um, you know, one of the most painful phenomenons that did not happen in Jesus' day or my day was these, uh, these Facebook posts or Maybe a direct message, or I don't know how Snapchat works, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of abuse that goes on, apparently, with Snapchat. Uh, people just destroy each other's reputations on Instagram. I mean, I have two children that are uh, one in high school, one in college, so I know this. I know that people are destroyed by this stuff. You know, and you might be the one doing it. In fact, I can guarantee you that in some ways you are doing it. You're in some way 
um, mocking people or lampooning them or speaking to them in ways that cuts down. That's the darkest aspect of this is that we internalize it and then we do it to others. We take it into ourselves and we do it to others. Psychology Today had an article on bullying, which is a epidemic, and 90% of students grades four through eight. So if you're in grade four through eight, um, nine out of 10 of you uh, experience some kind of bullying. And guess where it peaks? This is surprising me. It peaks at the age of 12. This is when the cruelty of kids really comes out, the age of 12. So these, these, uh, these bullies, and again, a lot of us are both bullied and bully, but bullies target kids who are fearful and who lack assertiveness, which might be you, might have been you. And they humiliate kids who are smaller and weaker and more awkward, and that often leads to depression, which we're seeing uh, in record numbers, anxiety, self-harm, and then dropping out of school even, bullying. Uh, and the victim thinks, I'm weird, I'm strange, I'm embarrassing. And, you know, I had this happen to me, so I know. I know the pain of that, and it's still there. It still haunts me. Uh, it's very hard to get out of your kind of muscle memory. You know, you're still living under the tyranny of that person who bullies you. And here's what this passage shows, is that Jesus experienced that with you. And that he wouldn't even take the anesthetic that was offered to him, because he's like, no, I've got to... I've got to experience this with my my sisters and my brothers. Like, I've got to know what they experience, Father. I've got to, I've got to be there with them and for them. And so if you say, I've I've been bullied, Lord, he says, me too. And And if you say, I'm in such darkness because of what they've said about me, he says, there was darkness over the whole land when I was crucified, verse 33, total darkness. And you say, you know, God's not listening to me. He's not helping me. And Jesus is like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's as low as it gets. He thought he was abandoned by God. So that's point one. Verbal abuse, it's real. We do it to each other. It's a horrible part of life. But then the second point, which is the triumph, is that Christ redeems it. Partly by what I just said, he, he experiences it. He is abused for us. In our place, he is abused. And he defeats the bully, the enemy. There is, a, there is an enemy, there is an accuser. His name is Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser. And he means to destroy you verbally. He means to take you. The reason that we bully each other, because he's a bully, and he inspires it. He loves it. Most of what he does is verbal. Most of what he does is not physical. But the enemy is the one who, um, who destroys our, our psyche. And Jesus beats him. And he doesn't beat him by bullying him back or calling him names. But he essentially beats him by just saying, I'll take it all. I'll take it all. And now I'm going to have this public acclamation from the Father. Surely this is the Son of God. Right after he dies, from the mouth of a Roman centurion, surely this is the Son of God. So that's the second point, redeeming this abuse. Now Jesus was in thick darkness. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He thought he was completely abandoned. But behind the clouds, behind the darkness, just above uh, whatever, what kind of eclipse was going on there, there was the son. There was the father who was saying, you are my beloved. You are my pride and joy. I, I will never leave you. Do not ever think that in the crucifixion, the Trinity was broken. It was not broken. The three never broke fellowship. 
But Jesus was taking all of our God forsakenness into himself and experiencing that. And so even as he is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like the father just sends this shockwave through the mouth of the centurion to repel all of the lies and all of the abuse and says, this is the son of God. That's who this is. This is, this is the son of, surely, verse 39. Now, th- think about who says it. Okay, this is, God's like, I'll take your worst abuser, Satan, the centurions. They're pretty tough guys. They're very hardened. They were experts at abuse. And he's like, I'm going to take your worst abuser, Satan, and I'm going to make him my mouthpiece to affirm my son. And uh, this is actually the first person in the Gospel of Mark that gets it. Even the disciples don't get it. Nobody gets that he's the son of God until this moment. And it's a Roman centurion that's the first one to understand who he really is. And uh, the question I had this week, as I was thought, thinking about this, I was thinking, well, so what did he see? Like, what, <clears throat> what, what was the centurion watching there that made him believe that this was the son of God? And you know that he had to... Um, have followed the story to some extent of this man, Jesus. And you know that he had to know about these claims that he was making to be the God of Israel, the incarnation of the God of Israel. And this centurion would have known the God of Israel, or at least about the God of Israel very well, because he worked among the Jews. So he knew about Yahweh. He had heard of Yahweh. And he's this hardened warrior. He's seen hundreds of people crucified. Every crucifixion was, had an overseer who was a centurion, and they would make sure that the person died. And so this guy has seen many people shaking and screaming and cursing and, you know, losing physical control of their bodies, frankly. I mean, it'd be a horrific thing to behold. And this guy has seen hundreds of them. And there was something about the way that this man died on that cross um, so regally, with so much intentionality and purpose and so gracefully that the centurion was like, this is the embodiment of the God of Israel. This is, this, he is who he said he was. He is, he is the incarnation of the Son of God. And somehow, I think he might have even known that, that he was bearing all of that abuse and just taking it into himself in our place, in the place of the centurion, in the place of all of us. And so when, you know, when the bully uh, in Mount Tabor High School knocked into me and uh, Made everybody laugh as I dropped my drink on the ground and it shattered everywhere. You know, what this story is saying is that God, the creator, um, who knows me, was not just standing by me, but he was writing that down in his autobiography. That was, he was taking that story into himself because I am part of him. I'm one with him, as are you, if you believe. That we actually are part of his story. That as lovingly and as detailed as Mark would have written it down about Jesus, he would have written that down about me and you. And the bully on the bus that kept making fun of my fingernails for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but that was what he choose, uh, chose to pick on. Uh, God would say, I take that into myself. And, and St. Athanasius, uh, one of the greatest uh, early church fathers, uh, he said that uh, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. So unless the Son of God assumed it into his own life, in other words, assuming means to take it into his own life, then it cannot be redeemed. And sure enough, here it is. The Son of God, as the centurion said, is assuming all of the verbal abuse and he is redeeming it. And God defeated the bully by taking all of his worst and then just canceling it and saying, I take all of this and I say, no, surely this is the Son of God. 
This is a royal child of mine. As he would say of you, as he would say of you, no, this is a royal child of mine. This is not what you say this person is. And notice how I love this, la- this detail at the very beginning where he lets us in to the whole plot. He, he brings a, this man in. And this would have been an oppressed man, this man named Simon of Cyrene. He was from Africa. Uh, he was on his way to the temple. He was a Jewish convert. He was minding his own business. Uh, Simon of Cyrene. And uh, it says in verse 21, they compelled a passerby coming from the country to carry his cross. So Simon's just coming in on pilgrimage with his family and all of a sudden these Roman soldiers notice he's black and they grab him and they push him towards Jesus who's stumbling and can't carry his cross. And they're like, you, you know, you take it. You, you join in. And you know that Simon and his family are like, what is happening, Lord? How could this be happening? We're here to worship you and you're, you know, you're, you're causing our dad or our, my husband to be brought into the crucifixion of this man. And the amazing thing there is that it was what drew the whole family into the church. Um, Mark is writing this gospel to Rome, to the church in Rome. And in verse 21, he wants the Romans to know, yeah, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, These would have been revered eyewitnesses. These would have been people who could have confirmed details of the story. Otherwise, Mark wouldn't put their names in. He wouldn't just say like, oh yeah, there was an Alexander and a Rufus there. Not that you've ever heard of them. You know, the point was, yeah, Alexander and Rufus are right there reading the gospel. So God uses Simon and carrying the cross to bring in the whole family into the, the, the most important church, pillars of the most important church of early Christendom. And Jesus is saying to Simon, and to, he, he's saying, I want you by my side as a fellow sufferer. I want, let's do this together. Let's take this cross up that hill together. Because God had not forsaken humanity at all. He, he did exactly the opposite. He was more present um, than ever at this moment of God forsakenness. Because in verse 38, it says that the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So imagine just a giant curtain as big as that organ, bigger than that organ, very thick, and imagine supernaturally for no reason at all. I mean, it'd be very hard to tear that curtain with a lot of people trying to tear it. With huge scissors, you'd have a very hard time tearing that curtain. Supernaturally from the top to the bottom, it is just torn And what is behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Most High dwells, over the Ark of the Cherubim. That's where the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud, that's where God dwelled. And you couldn't go in there because it was too dangerous for you. But now the the curtain is torn and it's like the Holy One just comes pouring out. Divinity just comes, you know, flooding into our world from behind that Holy of Holies. And God is saying, no, I am here. As soon as, as soon as his son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain is torn. God rushes into the world. And so we see in this meal a sign of his presence in what looks like a meaningless degradation. Remember, we love these rascals.